HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ariel Arce. We'll talk to Ariel about hustling through the pandemic, her new book, Better With Bubbles, and maybe even a little caviar. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. New York City's own Ariel Arce is the proprietor of Niche Niche, Air Champagne Parlor, Tokyo Record Bar, and Special Club. Ariel is a thought leader, tastemaker, influencer, and has been tagged as the new guard of New York dining. She has created convivial, laid-back, and affordable neighborhood hangs with a focus on wine, champagne, education, music, and creative food. Ariel Arce has been referred to as, and is, the Champagne Queen. She recently launched a new caviar company called Caviar and has a new book, which we'll get into, called Better With Bubbles, coming out of all days, November 3rd. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Ariel. I just want you to know this is the first Grape Nation interview since COVID in March that we are doing face-to-face, 
and we are back together at your place, Niche Niche, in Greenwich Village. We are socially distanced. So welcome to the show. It's it's great to be back. Thank you. I feel like I'm an all-star now, <laughs> getting to come on back the show. Yeah, it's like Saturday night. We'll give you a jacket when it's five times. Oh, sweet. All right. Make mine red, though. Because we had you on, people can go to the other show and get some background on you and the places. I really want to concentrate on two things. Um, and one of the reasons I did ask you to come back, um, because I want to talk about how the pandemic has affected you, 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 and your restaurants. Um, to my recollection, before the pandemic, you were on a roll. You had... Not recently, but you opened your fourth venue featuring food, wine, and music, Special Club. Yeah. So that was a dream fulfilled, below Niche Niche. Um, and then in March, this past March, and we're sitting here, it is late October, um, you got to shut everything down. Mm. So what I want you to do is think of it this way. Take me through a diary of how you got through all of this and got back to, I guess, where we are today, which is limited indoor and outdoor seating. So I'll kind of set up the chronology. When did you realize you had to close? Um, I guess the why was, you know, the state or the city. And when that happens, are you ever prepared for that? I feel like you're making me relive my trauma. Well, this I just like thought of that. Therapy but 101. I'll give, a, I'll give you a hug after. <laughs> um, you know, the best thing that could have ever happened was the city mandating that people had to shut down. I think that it was a really painful time to be using your own guesstimation on if you should be open or closed because you saw some of your peers closing. You saw other people staying open. Of course... I would never want to close because I have a lot of employees that need jobs. And, of course, we have bills to pay. And, you know, eventually just the city forcing it was actually best relief that you could have asked for because you didn't get to make a decision. It just had to happen. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's the same story that probably most people will say, which is like, do you remember when we thought it was only going to be a few weeks? And well, then that, it was eight months. Well, and that, that was... <laughs> That was sort of the next question. It's like when it happened, yeah. you just implied that, all right, this yeah. is going to go on for a little bit and we'll, that didn't happen. Right? There was a lot of like touch and go of what you knew you could do or what you couldn't do. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how closely you were paying attention to everything that was happening, but it, it felt like every single week there was a new guideline. There was a new piece of information of what was allowed, who was essential, who was not, you know curfews, masks, no masks, like it just never allowed you to prepare in any way whatsoever. And and even currently, you know, it being three days from November 1st, and that was supposed to be when the government would announce if we could be 50% capacity. Is there indoors. a yay or nay on that? Or you're still waiting? There's nothing. Okay. So there's never anything. There's right. just... Two weeks before you know something, then once you know it, there's strict rules on what you can't do, and then that changes immediately. So for me, I think my first thought was, well, we can't really close. I mean, that's crazy. You know, you can do delivery and takeout. Okay, well, what does that look like for us? And I have a lot of respect for takeout restaurants more than ever now. because. It's an art. 
Yeah, it's just a totally different business than anything I ever set out to do. And on top of that, to be a great takeout restaurant and also be a great restaurant is really, really difficult. And so not only are you learning how to make your business viable, you're also trying to make it visible um, because at that time there has been and is no food media at the moment. The only thing that the media wants to talk about, which was the thing that we would use in the past to get our messages out into the world, is, you know, what's happening with the depressive state of restaurants, what's happening with Me Too and restaurants, what's happening with POC and restaurants. That's the topic of conversation, which is a massively important conversation to be had. But that's um, all it was. That's all it was. And that's kind of currently still what it is. So I was actually talking with a girlfriend yesterday and she said that she had just come back from Los Angeles and her friend asked her like where they should go out, you know, for something. And she went on Eater and did a little Google and was like, what's the new place to go to? And like the depressive nature of everything that was on Eater just made her be like, let's order in. Like that's kind of, I think... It's not a disservice. It's just like the nature of clickbait and what people are trying to do at this time is just tell these stories of what we've all been going through, but like not what's actually happening right now. And I think there's some really amazing stuff happening in our industry, whether it's like restaurants collaborating, whether it's people that have like lost their jobs and are doing really unique pop-ups, whether it's like cool kits for the home or or restaurants being open and offering like really cool experiences – you're not seeing much of that. So let's take it back to March slash April. You know, I'm pretty lucky because we've been building our newsletter blast and our email outreach for years now that we were able to kind of send out into the world, look, here's all this shit that we're going to throw against the wall. Like, which is going to stick on you? And when you have three different restaurants trying to do that at once, it's complicated. We also had to furlough um, the majority of my staff, but I also made commitments to people where I said, until you get or have any sort of unemployment, I'll pay you X dollars that I can afford to pay you, or you know, let's try to do this kind of takeout thing and I'll give people day rates, like whatever I need to do. And my biggest stress always is that my staff is taken care of. And that was a really hard time because before unemployment got passed, and especially with that extra $600 that people got, you were kind of fearing that people were about to be making like $400 a week on unemployment and just unable to live their lives. When was that? I mean, when did you realize that you had to consider furlough and... I mean, you have to do it immediately. Was that like still in March or early April? Yeah. I mean, I think we closed on the 15th. I think I of March, as everybody had to. Okay. Um, And then I think I reached out to the entire staff as I did almost every single week for the first like few months that we were open. And I said, here's the updates. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. I also started a GoFundMe so that... The staff How did that do? Could have responsive. People? Yeah, we raised like twenty thousand dollars, which you near, know near goal. That was my goal. Oh, great! Like it was kind of wild to watch other restaurants set these goals of a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars, and like actually raise the money. You know, good like deep respect to that and the people that support them. But 
I couldn't even fathom that. I just thought we would be closed for a month. So what would it cost for me to pay out some stipends for people for the next few weeks? And and so we got to this lovely number where basically like everybody got an additional couple, like thousand bucks or so, depending on if they were full time or part time. And and then the unemployment kicked in. And that gave what about me some PPP? relief. Did you did you do all the we applied diligent like accounting stuff? Yeah, we applied for the PPP and the EIDL loans, and we got both of them. And we got them late, which actually worked to our advantage. Spread out a little. Yeah, we got it about four weeks before they extended the period. And it's actually funny. I woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking, <laughs> "Oh my god, why have we not had any information on how to apply for PPP forgiveness?" Like, yeah, it was supposed to happen on October 24th. Like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> that's a total aside. But that's like my <laughs> life these days. But uh, yeah, we got those. You did those... it in the middle of last night in the middle of the show. That's <laughs> <laughs> endless, okay. Endless Keep it on your financial mind. stress. Um, what about? But yeah, that was really helpful. Do you and... think, this is sort of none of my business, but do you try to seek rent relief? Do you go to yeah, landlords? I got all those things. You did. Um. You know, my feeling was when the PPP was first written, those initial bylaws, it said that you could use 25% of it to pay your rent, to pay your utilities, to pay your electricity, essentially. That was it. You couldn't do anything else with it. And then you had 75% to pay for your staff. And I contacted my landlord immediately. And here at Niche Niche, uh, he's a really great guy. And I said to him, look, I will get 40 plus thousand dollars as my 25%. How much time can that buy me? And he was like, I will give you until X time. And we made this really nice agreement. And, you know, it basically lowered my rent per month during that time. It was free money that I was using to give to him. And it's a, it's a chain of events. You know, I right. I came to him and said, we're all in this situation together. He was totally respectful of that. I gave him everything that I could give him at the time. And he was appreciative. And, and since then, you know, we've come back to the table two or three times where I've said, to keep going, look at what we're in. What are we doing? And and incrementally, we kind of raise it every month because I'm doing more business every month, but I'm not back to my original rent. And and it's just that's so what needs to happen. So he's sort of been flowing with you. You're lucky you have a good landlord. And it, it also has happened at my other locations as well, too. Um, I think there's some really sh- obvious. Wait, you you have two locations, four places. We're it's sitting yeah. at Special Club Niche Niche. Airs One location are on top exactly. of each other. So you, you're only dealing with two guys. Yeah, thank thankfully. God. Yeah. Um, and the other guy is reasonable? Yeah, they were great too. They they cut my rent in half for the first few months and now I'm paying it at like 35% cut. And um, I, I heard all these stories of people who were like, my landlord is being a jerk and won't work with us. But I've also had conversations with those people and be like, well, what did you offer? And they offered nothing. What was your relationship going into those offers i mean i'm sure here my no re- no i'm i'm it was more rhetorical i'm sure you created a good relationship with your landlord where when the time came it wasn't an you know an uncomfortable thing yeah but like at airs in tokyo like it's a huge company i don't have any relationship with my right. landlord i just pay my rent on time Sterile, yeah but but i think such a huge part of this time has been about being creative and negotiating and I think a lot of people felt like 
well, this is happening to me and I don't want to take any responsibility for it. And I think the fact is at the end of the day, I signed a lease. I, you know, committed to things like I put it put my name on here. Like, yeah, my industry is totally screwed and it's not by choice, but I'm still responsible for but things. But that's why you're a good business person, because your perspective is real. Other people are like, F this, you know, I'm screwed, you're screwed. Yeah. I mean, you got to sit down. I've heard down a lot and, of horror stories. Yeah. From both I, sides. I mean, it's refreshing to hear, and I'm not surprised, by the way. Um, so employee-wise, you talked about furloughing people as things are not getting anywhere nor- near normal, but, you know, you're doing more or people gradually coming back we've returned to our entire staff you and did. hired you yeah, did we have uh, uh, you know i some, know a lot of the people because you know i've been in and out of did, that have did, not returned because they've chosen to maybe change careers or they've left the city but or, that's the only reason yeah, yeah so anybody who wanted to come back came back that's a that's a tribute to you for the environment you create and the vibe that you create and how it trickles down you know, keeping an eye out. That's me complimenting you. You don't have to respond to that. <laughs> I know you. that because I see it. Thank you. You know, um, this is not like a bat mitzvah where I'm giving you like a speech and all oh that. God, but I'm yeah. just telling you. Come on you know. up and light the candle number 12, Sam. So, you know, everything you're telling me is, you know, somewhat positive. Your experience in the toughest of times, you handled, you know, all the adversities um, well. Talk to me, like, logistically. You know, now you have a restaurant. You're, like, floating for two weeks, and you have a freezer full of food and all the swine. W- what happens? You know, at some point, you got to say, I got a freezer full of meat and, you know. A, well, I'm ooh. kind of lucky because I don't. Well, that's not how our concepts work, which right. is great for us. Right. Um, you know, it's it's not good for many people who are trying to plan for the future and, our concepts change every week. Right. So you so, don't have a whole 800 steaks there. No. If nobody showed yeah. up tomorrow, we could just not order food for tomorrow. Right. And we'd maybe bite the bullet on a couple thousand dollars worth of product, but, like, it's not going to kill us. Um, the real issues are your overheads, like your non-negotiable overheads, which luckily have been slightly negotiable. But you still got to pay for the building every you know, month, you've got to pay for your electricity, you got to pay for all the things that you've rented, all the equipment, you know, you're still paying off your inventory. But at a certain point, after we got our funding, um, I, I worked with my accountant, and I said, I want to pay off everything. Let's pay off everything. So we have a fresh sl- like slate and no debt. Wow. And in some respects, that was good. In some respects, that's not good. Um, but it made my conscience feel better and it allowed us to be able to kind of start fresh where, you know, hopefully the PPPs are going to be forgiven and these EIDL loans are paid back over 30 years at very low interest, almost no interest. And no, no hardship, really. And to be frank, like they're, they've been received under LLCs. So if everything is going to go terrible tomorrow and belly up, like I'm not personally liable right. for that. You have it structured. So, you know, I my feeling was if we can make other people whole and we can make ourselves whole, then we can start fresh and we can actually be creative about how we want to build from well, there. I, I want to talk to you about that. Um, on the, the PPP thing, and excuse my ignorance, was the intention to give you the money and not 
pay it back. It was sort of a loan that you... As long as you use the PPP funding correctly, for, correctly they would forgive? it's forgiven. Okay, I just wanted to make yeah. sure. And you're assuming that's going to happen. Well, it was difficult when it was eight weeks, and that's why everybody rushed to bring their staff back, because... All the PPP is, is... To legitimize that you have the staff there because of the PPP? Or is it PPP or PPE? PPP. 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 PPE is what we wear on our faces. Right, right. Um, so the entire purpose of the PPP is to allow Trump to say that he got people off unemployment because you become the unemployment as the business. The problem is, is that if you give all this money to a business that is flailing and drowning and you say like you can only use 25% of it for what you need and the other 75% is a joke like you just have to pay it out to people it's very hard to reckon with and a lot of people took the money and were like there's just no way I can actually spend this amount of money on my staff one people aren't in town two people don't want to come back to work three they're making more money on unemployment like you had Good to point. reach certain targets so when you have to substantiate it some people even in their best efforts had trouble using going it. by the guidelines using it and thankfully we got it with the timeline of the extension of the 24 weeks from eight weeks, which allowed us to bring back our staff, anybody that wanted to come back to work, pay people more than they were getting on unemployment, but for services rendered, and extend that period for as long as possible. So, like, if anybody from unemployment services or payroll is listening to this right now. Um, I fudged so many things to make sure that my staff would make really good money. And also if they wanted to claim unemployment to continue to be able to complain to claim unemployment. Like I didn't care. Right. I was like, do you, because we do not know what the future is going to be. Fair. You paid all this money into unemployment, Fair. get what's yours. And also if you want to come back to work, Let's figure out something where we can use this money as long as possible and you can benefit all around. And that's when we actually reopened the restaurants as like true takeout places where we started niche, niche takeovers and Tokyo takeout. Take this next question from there and you started answering it. So that was what are the pivots that you had to make? when you realize, you know, everything was Mm -hmm. moving along. Mm -hmm. So the first, I guess the next pivot, because one of them was applying for everything, securing them, you know, employees, the, the first. Well, think about it this way. Go ahead. If you were given a bunch of money, let's just say you're opening a new restaurant and you raise capital to open said restaurant and you have what ever your heart's desire to spend that money on you buy product right so that you can sell product or you buy things to make product what the ppp did was not give you the ability to buy product but buy labor people so when you have people you can create and that was my pivot was before i was relying on like selling the product that I had in-house. Now it was about let's get people back together, think about how much time we have to create the best thing that we can create for ourselves, and then we can make it. So it was kind of a backwards, almost like start, right. like startup approach of like, I brought in people to create product rather than buy product. And it allowed us to be as creative as possible 
which allowed us to do things like these amazing niche niche takeovers with chefs from all around the world and package them up and deliver them and do something that we could never dream possible because we had humans. That's been going on for two, three months already, right? Yeah, I mean... 12 weeks? No, it's it's longer? been about 22 weeks. Oh, it has been that long? Yeah, for us. See, that's, Potentially longer. That's, you know, that's how you view this business. You know, that's your hustle. I mean, you put your priorities in a certain place. People are, yeah, people are my priority. Yeah. I mean, that you know, Danny right. Meyer goes be. back to take care of your people first type thing. I mean, we won't get into that. Mm-hmm. Um what about stuff like wine? Like I know food, you know, like you weren't sitting, you, you had a decent amount of wine. Did you stop ordering wine? Oh, definitely. Weren't you able, weren't there laws that allowed you to retail wine now? Yep. So we stopped buying anything basically except right. essentials. And I don't think we bought wine for months and we just worked off of the inventory that we had and we would retail that or we'd sell it alongside food that we did did people respond to the retail because i saw all the good cool restaurants yeah basically became wine retailers yeah and incredibly curated great stuff so that was was a good move it was great it was a lot of work for like not a ton of money but at least you were selling off something that you had right and you didn't have to buy for it um you know, I would see, and and there was another pivot for me, right? I saw friends who decided to create, like, trading posts and... General stores. Like, general or... stores, and they would have to buy things for it. Because if you say, like, I'm going to always have this skew of wine, or I'm always going to have, like, this many whites and this many reds and et cetera, like, you have to purchase for that. Whereas my thought was, let's do like almost a grab bag, right? Where I did something Whatever. called champagne or wine roulette, where you could tell me things that you liked. You could tell me how much money you wanted to spend. You could tell me how much you wanted to spend per bottle. And I would just pull stuff from the seller. And so you would get a random mixed case of things based on a few questions that we would ask you. And nobody ever needed to know that I didn't have any Sauvignon Blanc in my cellar, you know, or that I didn't have any You didn't Gamay. set it up that way, yeah. You know, I, I had plenty of light reds from around the world. So if you are into light, juicy reds, like, I just got to pull things and send them. And the thing that surprised me the most that was really flattering was that, one, people trusted me to do that and let that go on for quite a while. No surprise there. <laughs> and also the budgets they would give. They were really supportive. You know, they would say, I would assume that someone would be like, oh, you know, 20 to 20, 30. 20 bucks a bottle, 30 bucks a bottle. People would give me $500 budgets. Jesus, good for you. You know, like, and that wasn't everybody. No, I had plenty of people it, who but wanted. But it happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, what, um, I mean, how, I'm trying to figure out just this, this is what I wanted to ask you. Because we were talking about customers, um, and I've seen you reference this in social media today. How is a customer supposed to act when they come into a restaurant? I'm assuming most people do the right thing, but mm. I'm sure there are some assholes. What's the minimum expectation you have for somebody to enjoy? You know, a night outside if it's nice out mm-hmm. or inside spaced. For me, it's kind of 
it hasn't changed that much because we rarely get assholes in general in our restaurants. Right. It's not the DNA of who comes here. No, we've never been like, I mean, we've certainly been cool, hard to get into restaurants. Sure, I'm not going to deny that. But we've never been the type of place where you're like, they're dicks there, so we're dicks when we go there. You know, like, we've always had really nice people because we try our best to treat people well. Um, and so I, it's not a big issue. I don't really see that much of an issue. What I do see is that people don't give the tolerance that I think that they should be giving in this moment. Like, if you don't get enough attention table side, what's like, who are you to think that in this moment you should be interacting nonstop with a server? It's so one, not safe. Two, we should be distancing ourselves as much as you should be distancing yourself because as a server, you're interacting with potentially 100 people a night. You don't really want the same type of but interaction that you used to there's have. There's a perfect example. And of, to be disappointed that you don't get it, but I think, is an entitlement that people need to let go of. I agree. But that's something you created. You created that vibe and that yeah. touch point yeah. and, the, you know, all your people have personalities mm-hmm. and that's, you know, what it's about. So if these are regulars coming in, mm-hmm. they're a little upset. But to your point, they just have to let it go. I mean, what do you expect in this circumstance? I think we have our thing has always been like try to set the expectation because when a guest walks into an experience and they don't necessarily know what they're going to eat or drink or like things are going to be surprising, which they always used to be. We never used to release our Tokyo Record Bar menu. We never used to release the Niche Niche menu. It was always a surprise. Now we give people more of an understanding of what they're going to walk well, into. It's built around that now. Because it's the different. The chefs and the personalities yeah. and the collaborations. You got to get excited, yeah. right? But I think you don't have a choice. But when they sit right, down. To get people excited. To come. Look what we're doing. This guy, this guy. This exactly. Really, yeah. So when people sit down, we really try to set the expectation, which is, look, have you been here before? If you haven't, here's how it's going to run this time. And this time, I'm going to try to give you as much space as possible. I'm here to talk to you as much as you want. If you need anything, if you don't feel like you're getting the attention that you need, like I'm here for you. But I'm also not going to be sitting at your table with you tonight. Right. Which is fair. And I, you probably have to tell that to a few people. Um, is, I worry about this maybe less with you, but you know, we have a lot of friends in the biz. I mean... To what extent is the restaurant business going to survive in New York? I mean, you know people that are probably out already. You yeah, know people that are struggling beyond. Yeah. I mean, what do you see in six months, a year, two years? You know, when do you see your life back to whatever a so-called normal is? It feels like an impossible question because, again, you have no way to prepare for the future. You have no clue what the future is going to look like. I have anxiety every day about what next month is going to be like. Are we going to have a second wave? Are we going to get shut down again? What do we do if that does happen? Yes, yes, Do we maybe, have to maybe. return to takeout again? Like all those things cross our minds all but the all time. But all that stuff's potentially in play. Yeah. I mean, it's not fun. <laughs> like this business, as much as it wasn't glamorous, at least it was fun. You found the fun and made it fun and created We all did. Yeah, why would you come here every day? You surrounded yourself with people, concepts, spaces. So this just makes it trying. Yeah, and like when you think about your life and you think about like how you wanna move forward in your life, like there's, I will always be the person who like gets knocked off the horse and gets back on, right? That's just who I am. But at a certain point, 
you have to look at what the current climate is and you have to make smart choices and good decisions. And sometimes that decision might be to not get back up on a horse because that right. horse might be lame, right. you know, like it right. might hurt you. Right, and but it's a calculated decision. Exactly. So, you know, you, you know, in the intro, you're a tastemaker, trendsetter, you know, you have all these concepts and everything. Um, you know, Special Club was fairly new. Mm -hmm. My assumption was that, you know, you were going to keep going with ideas. Is it fair to say that your idea, your ideas of expansion have sort of become survival now? I mean, now it's surviving, not expanding. It's what? Or no. Or I don't know. Like, I, it doesn't mean restaurant. Okay. A year from now, I don't know what that looks like. But I know that restaurants are not dead in the water forever. It, I don't think people want them to be. So to not think about doing more projects in the future or more restaurants or restaurants that are created for this type of climate that can be built into other things down the road. Like, I think it's foolish to not think about those things because we're going to come out of this at some point and it's going to unfortunately be a kind of sad wasteland of what remains. And there's always going to be room for new things. I like the way you answered that because you answer it with hope, hustle. You're yeah. you're not so under the water that you can't see, you know, above it. And I think that's, you know, very healthy. And I think because of that, um, you know, you'll eventually get to where you want. Ariel, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Ariel Arce. Ariel is the proprietor of Niche Niche Special Club Tokyo Record Bar. Um and what am I missing? Oh, Air Champagne Parlor, which really uh, launched it all. Um, we're going to come back and talk to Ariel about her new book. You are listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ariel Arce. What? 
I was just going to say, like, restaurant or extraordinaire. You, you know, people have called you the <laughs> champagne queen and all that. I, I guess it's silly. We don't need to make up names <laughs> I don't for you. Need yeah, titles. it's, it's so. It's all right. So. I want to spend some time talking to you about a book that you wrote, a book, you know, that's a passion of yours that, you know, before we didn't talk much about, so we could jump into this. You have a new book called Better With Bubbles. That's the short name. It goes on and on, something effervescent, blah, blah, blah. We'll get to it eventually. Yeah, I don't even think I know it. (laughs) It's coming out on all days, election day, which is a week from today, um, which is when, you know, we'll air this, and... Because it's champagne-related, I think it hopefully could be good timing. All right, so I read a digital copy of the book. So I was able to really go through, you know, all the artwork, everything. It was just, you know, on the computer. Um, I found it informative, which I think you intended. I found it practical because you could go to areas, whether it's shopping, you know, or information. Um, I thought it was fun, which, you know, a book like that. You know, you don't want to. And I think it was somewhat typical of you because it was a little edgy and irreverent, which I think. I'll take that. Yeah, I think you <laughs> wanted that. And whether it was the photography or the artwork, right. or, you know, you you broke the um, sections down. Um, I'm going to quote something you said. You said, champagne and I have something in common. Mm. So to kick off the book, why would you say that and what is it? Um, I, I think the actual quote in the book says... Champagne and I have something in common. What, if anything, is possible? Right. And Thank you for finishing. <laughs> uh, I believe that. I, I mean, champagne was created out of a mistake, right? It was created be, not on purpose to be right. in its present form. Um, and I think once people realize that mistakes can actually lead to happy accidents, um, then, you know, you everything you thought that you knew changes and you have the potential to set a new course for anything afterwards um my my formative mantra yeah my formative life was an actor my wannabe gymnast yeah like (laughs) i did too many things in the first half of my life that i can't even remember that i do now don't do now you know and um i think you never really know where your life is going to go. And saying yes to things is really important. And kind of faking it till you make it, I think, is a great thing. I don't think that people should walk into every situation fully prepared. I think you should stay open-minded and think of your failures as, you know, learning experiences for anything you want to do. And, yeah, I think we hold ourselves back a little bit too much because we're afraid. So, do you? I know you're going to say yes to this, but you've taken enough risks and done enough things. I mean, do you feel that applies to you to some extent? Do you have regrets for things you haven't done, or? Um, I don't have regrets for things I haven't done. I definitely think that I can be smarter about some things, or not so like. That's fair. You know trigger happy on stuff maybe be more thoughtful but um yeah i've taken teachers that's (laughs) yiddish they call that narshkeit that's nonsense you could you could uh you could handle all that you know i see people who seem to kind of not be failless but like everything is really calculated and methodical and they always connect with the right people when they want to do something and maybe their message becomes more powerful. 
I think that in my early half of my career, I didn't understand how to message something and really understand the power of that as a strategy for um, sending out into the world something that might be new or different. Why would you? I mean, nobody really, you were never in environments, you know, corporate or whatever, where Mm -hmm. there was structure Mm -hmm. and, you know, whether it be sales seminars or Mm -hmm. marketing, you know, so you had to self-teach yourself. Yeah. But, you know, you came out, you know, with the light at the end of the tunnel. Just go back one more second with me with the champagne thing. Champagne's a pretty big part of your identity. I mean, where where was that first touch? I mean, why champagne? I mean, who was the influence or why that and not beer? Yeah, right. Well, uh, maybe it, it was going to be beer. It was just, I really fell in love with the beverage industry more than I did from the food perspective or even the hospitality perspective. Um, and I wanted for once in my life to be a master of something. I have always been very good at a lot of things. Like I'm really lucky. I know that we've had this conversation before where I talk about luck and you yell at me and say that luck doesn't exist. Like you make your luck, blah, blah, blah. But I know that I was born with an innate set of skills that made me pretty good at certain things. And that's a gift. So for my upbringing, you know, I was a gymnast and a professional actor and I could dance and I could sing and I was relatively charming if I wanted to be and things didn't come that hard to me. Right. It started to come hard to me when I entered the food and beverage industry because I had never done it before. I was learning on the fly all the time. But did you like the challenge? I I loved the challenge. It didn't push you back, right. I remember my... It fueled you. Yeah, I remember my mother just being so disappointed that I went into this business. Yeah. And and she's just like, you're so good at so many other things. Why would you choose to do this? And I was like, yeah, but this thing is making me feel good. Like, those other things don't make me feel good. There isn't a psalm (laughs) that doesn't have that story or a chef or whatever. Right. Let's talk about the book. Let's get the... uh, the required goofy questions out of the way. Um, what was the reason or what inspired you to write the book? Uh, why? Right. Um, when did it, when know, did it happen? You know, start gelling and beginning. So I would have never done this if okay. I had not met my editor. Um, this wonderful woman named Caitlin Leifel, who Separate of wanting to write a book, you met an ed- editor and that no, inspired... No, no, she approached me. Oh, okay. Um, she was kind of in like a semi-retirement at Rizzoli, and she had either come into Ayers or had read um, our menu from Ayers and was like, I really... And like followed me on Instagram and was like, I think you have a good voice for this subject. Would you want to write cool. a book? And I had taken a couple meetings with some other um, publishers. publishers, thank you, and I, it just didn't really click or, like, vibe. And when I met Caitlin, I was like, you know, I don't really have any intention of writing a book. One, like, I'm a terrible speller. And she was like, you know, we can help you with that. It's not your problem, right. I was like, okay. Just get close. Exactly. Um, and And she was like, I think that you could write a book on – the world of sparkling wine or champagne that's for a younger demographic that is really excited about this product. And I think you can make it really fun. And that was like so all an- I needed to hear. So answer this question. You know, I got a million questions. <laughs> there are a lot of champagne books out there. Yeah. Here's your pitch. 
what makes this book a little different, mm-hmm. and it may be who it's you yeah. know uh, for. Um, this book isn't and, just about champagne. So the w- subject. Well, well, and why should people buy it? It's it's <laughs> it's sparkling wine, if which is champagne and sparkling wine. Is right. that what you were going to say? Yeah, the book is about what is currently going on in the world of sparkling. So champagne is a huge part of that, and champagne is my main focus. But then it also touches upon what's going on in France outside of champagne, what's going on in Spain, Italy, Japan, what's going on in South Africa and New Zealand and America and England. So let's let's stay with that because we'll talk about champagne. I have a bunch of questions. But the book is about champagne and sparkling wine, which almost equally excites you. Talk to me about the world of sparkling. Mm-hmm. There are a dozen plus countries that mm-hmm. are, you know, doing a good job. What What's going on there? Well, to go back to your previous question, there is no text on this subject. There's no text on sparkling wine, period. There is on regions or styles, right? You could read a book about cava or you could read a book right. about champagne. Or you could read a book about Prosecco if you wanted to. Um But there was nothing that took all those things together, not to mention a ton of other things that were going on around the world and said, let's put this all on an equal platform. It's not my bias that I think champagne is better than these things. It's that they all exist. And here's a moment of what's going on. And I would love if, you know, there's one takeaway from this book that this is kind of the springboard for people to start writing more about wine with bubbles because it's wine first all of the the wines that are in this book i think of that way and it's just so happens that they have this common thing that they're ever vest you know so right. um i think that was a really cool and unnecessarily large challenge that I took on. Um, But once I started, I just couldn't stop because I would just start doing all this research and I would think about wines that I loved. And I was like, well, this needs to be included and this needs to be included. And and there we were. Yeah. It's an endless subject. Let's let's talk a little about champagne and sparkling wine. Um, I'll do this part. Champagne has to be made in champagne. It's twice fermented. Sparkling wine can be the same method as champagne, but it doesn't have to be. What are some of the other ways that sparkling wine is made? So you can make it with one fermentation. It can be force carbonated. It can be made fermentation in bottles like your Petant Naturals or Calfundos in Italy. Um, It can be made like in a sweet style, like Like a bougie Sardin or or a Lambrusco, um, all of which have grapes that are the indigenous varietals to that specific style. Um, So champagne is singular in the way it's made in that sense. Yeah, they they coined it, right? They figured it out. Right. And they've been doing it the longest. And then there's other regions and pretty much everywhere else in the world does make their take on method traditionnel or method champenoise if you're in champagne. Method traditionnel is method champenois? Just oh. not from champagne. Right. Okay. Um, talk to me about something very cool going on in champagne, and that's the grower movement, mm-hmm. um, which I think a lot of people don't know about. Right. And it's exciting. Yeah. It's, um, it's not just about the grower movement, which is – 
people that grow their own grapes and make wine from those grapes. It's about this kind of interconnected relationship that's happening between what are the large brands and maisons and small winemakers that are now not even that small anymore sometimes, um, and how they're kind of pushing one another for the sustainability of the region. Um, Champagne in the 70s and 80s, the terroir was really tormented with terrible, terrible practices. And now you have this, I mean, you have a new generation now, but I would almost say three waves that have happened since of people who either inherited vineyards, who bought vineyards because 30, 40 years ago, maybe that would be possible, um, and started applying techniques that spoke to them, whether they were revitalizing their families domain or whether they were doing their own Mm -hmm. thing, you know, just starting fresh because maybe they went to university or they studied in other parts of the world, Burgundy, Italy, places like that. Um, And now we're like multiple generations in of this movement and the wines coming out of Champagne have never been as thoughtful and with such a mind towards the terroir. So that's loud and clear to me. I am a little cloudy on one thing. Um, That applies to the big houses too. They've not as much. Well, it'll always be a slower Because you said they were both, you know, the grower and the, the bigger houses, the maisons. There are some houses that are dedicated to being fully biodynamic or organic, Um, you know, you have houses like Leclerc Briant, which right. I had are heard of Justine on the show, oh, which he was cool a sweetheart of a yeah. guy. Amazing yeah. winemaker, but yeah. somebody who's like deeply rooted in biodynamics. Then you have somewhere like Louis Roederer, where in the past 20 years, they've made a commitment to saying that they would like to use all organic or biodynamic fruit in a certain period of time. The problem is, is that Maisons let's just talk about the big houses, make upwards of millions and millions of bottles. They do not own all the vineyards needed to produce the grapes for those millions and millions of bottles. So they buy grapes through longstanding contracts. And what, what is happening is that some of these houses are starting to incentivize these farmers to grow their grapes better for a better price. And when the big houses or the big marquees can set the standard of the price of grapes if you give me higher quality or organic or certified grapes then you start pushing the region to change as a whole you're never fully going to have a region of champagne where you have farmers that are growing grapes just to sell them off that are really conscious about growing organic or biodynamic or you know like really quality grapes right they already get a great price for their grapes. So who cares, right? But if they find that their neighbor happens to be doing it and getting more money, or their neighbor happens to be a small grower producer and their yields are incredible, or they're seeing something that's going on around them that feels like it could benefit them, then you start pushing a region to change. Is that moving at a decent clip or it's still sort of slow? I mean, it'll always be slow. I mean, we're talking sustainability, regenerative farming. You know, moving towards organics and yeah. biodynamics. We're not going to be like the Jura <laughs> Loire right. anytime I didn't expect soon, that, but, but, but there is... Uh, it's definitely progress. Okay. okay. Um, I think you can help me with this, and the book talks about it. Um, 
you know, these are things that are in the book that I was interested in. I think listeners would be, and, you know, I pulled out, um, People want to get into champagne. Maybe they need a gateway, but I don't want to put it that way. Where are the values in champagne? Like, don't let champagne as a term scare you away because right. there are values. Definitely. What are they? You know, you could be specific. You could be, you know, a particular region in champagne. What, mm-hmm. what do we look at for? I think if you're looking from like a house or brand perspective, there's a lot of great non-vintage wines coming from big houses that are being made in really quality ways. Throw some names up. Charles Heidzik, Henriot, Philippe Benat, Bollinger, um, Louis Roederer, um, you know, that's Delamotte. Like, these are just a few to, to start. But, you know, each one has a different story. But I think that if you allow yourself to step outside your comfort zone of a yellow label or a black label or Dom Perignon when you're feeling fancy and you There's actually so much more. start looking at some of these other houses that have been making value and quality for a long time, there is good quality there and there is, you know, really good value. I think what else is the amazing values of champagne is small producers, grower producers that are making, and I'm like shooting myself in the foot a little bit by saying this, but that are making single varietal Grand Cru wines. So there's plenty of producers out on the market that sell Grand Cru Chardonnay from some of the most incredible terroirs for like 40 bucks bucks wow. bottle, right? And they're not going to be necessarily ethereal, but the terroir of which they come from is really spectacular and you can get a great price. The reason why I say I shoot myself in the foot is because I always <laughs> like to say that Grand Cru and Premier Cru can potentially have no status if a winemaker is not a good winemaker. Right. Right? Title is nothing compared to... It's the, what that status the farming, has to the do farming, the food, with. and the winemaker. Right. That Grand Cru and Premier Cru had more to do with what a grower could sell the price of their grapes for to a Maison rather than if the actual grapes themselves were good quality. So when you have incredible winemakers, they could be making it out of village terroir and it could be better yeah. wine. Like vintage years, a bad vintage year with a good winemaker is still going to be a good... I say it all the time. I agree. Is it... I don't know if the word's obvious, but is it obvious that sparkling wines present a better value? Sometimes. I mean, it's not champagne, but... Sometimes. I so mean, it's not a blanket yes? Well, I I think it's not fair to say that, like, sparkling should be your gateway to champagne or, like, vice versa. Like, if I you, didn't say that, no, and didn't. I didn't imply that. You didn't. Okay. But sometimes people say, like, is the what's the Venn diagram for champagne of, like... How often do people start with sparkling and like make their way to champagne or how often is someone looking for something inexpensive? So you recommend champagne hoping that they're then going to – I mean you recommend sparkling hoping that they're going to get to champagne. And I think that there are always going to be people that one are going to be looking for like certain flavor profiles or like textures and those things aren't going to exist in champagne. So – it's fool. It's like a fool's errand for me to be recommending like categorically classic it'll never... wine for someone who wants something more natural, right? right. Yeah, and drink a pet net. Yeah, or you know, drink Reventos Greek, or yeah, Greek sparkling like with native varietals right. that are wild. You know, like there's so much cool sparkling wine in the world that 
I don't often like to only recommend champagne because, again, I think it's a disservice to the rest of the world sparkling. But I also, I also think that more often than not, starting with method champenoise or method traditionnelle and then moving people up the ladder of that style into champagne is the gateway. So sometimes like That's a your, good point. your cavas or French Accorta wines or American sparklings, like allow people to buy something a little bit less expensive and then gravitate into champagne. Where's Prosecco on that chart to you? Because we know a lot of people, maybe not your customers, maybe not our friends, drink Prosecco. Prosecco. You know, is that sort of like the... First of all, there's great Prosecco. That I know. I've had some people on, you know, natural makers. Yeah. And like the the, DOCG There's like a Grand Cru area, Val de Buena or whatever. You you nailed it. But um, I don't know. I think... There are days that I just want like the lightest, most fruit forward, most like easy breezy drinking wine. And I would open Prosecco to drink that or, you know, make kind of a cool spritz with it. Or, you know, like I think it has its purpose. I would never ridicule anybody for asking for Prosecco. But sometimes if I feel comfortable with a guest, I'll say like, do you want Prosecco because your wallet wants Prosecco or do you want Prosecco because you like the flavor profile? Right. And sometimes I'll get both answers. If you want inexpensive sparkling wine, there's amazing inexpensive sparkling wine from around the world. You don't just have to be stuck in this one marketing category. Um, But if you like Prosecco, there's also amazing Proseccos for you. Yeah. A couple more questions. And I want you to answer my wine list. We did it last time. Your preferences, I want to compare them. Okay. um, On social, and then I'll post them. Um, it will know, definitely have changed. Which I love to see yeah. where it's going and, you know, whatever. Um, you're making me work twice as hard, but I'm probably going to have to do a side-by-side, which I usually don't do. <laughs> um, obviously, people look at champagne. Even sparkling wine is a celebratory thing, and we're coming up to the holidays, mm-hmm. so that's kind of a natural mm-hmm. thing. But the real lead question is... Um, a good champagne and sparkling wine is with food. Oh, yeah. I mean, people like don't, you know, you, you're yeah. like, you're the original pizza lover. Yeah. I mean, let's just roll off the things that people may not think champagne, champagne goes with. Pizza. <laughs> pizza, hamburgers, french fries, tacos, Chinese food, Japanese food, fried chicken. What doesn't it go with? Nothing, except for spicy stuff. Sometimes that's too where spicy, maybe a Riesling work. or a Gorch Tremonier or something like that would something go. Something with a little RS, they always say, is the, like an Uncle Boone super spicy Thai. But then just like I don't drink think, cool beer. Yeah, but I don't that's even think fun. champagne, you know, would be that, you know, bad. It's um, hard when you have this really like peak acidity and really high effervescence and you pair that with something that's super spicy. It's just not that pleasurable. What happens? I mean, it's, what's the sort of the physical just, dynamic? The, the acidity gets a little too bitter. It's, it's not like a. It doesn't. Um, they combat each other. They. It's not pleasant. Like I don't really enjoy doing it. I and I when I drink eat spicy things, I don't crave drinking sparkling. I'd rather almost have sparkling water. You know, like yeah. And I love spicy food. So yeah, <laughs> that that's interesting. Um, 
it sort of makes sense. And when people do that, they should pay attention to see, you know, what they're tasting. Um, I know I will. Um, the last thing, and then we'll do the wine list. Um, you recently moderated a panel for La Fête de Champagne. Yeah. Um, curious of your thoughts on this. You know, you were probably thankful to do it, and I certainly don't want you to incriminate or be negative to anyone. But are those big, expensive, potentially exclusive events because of the cost and all of that? Um, and because of gatherings, mm -hmm. we can't gather. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think somebody would do one of those events and have 25% of the people. Right. Um, is that thing of the past or in time when they can they'll come back people change their thinking you, know, you understand what i'm asking totally you? first i think that people regardless especially if you have an if you had an expendable income before covid you probably still have an expendable income yeah covid didn't impact that percentage that, that, in the same way yeah. um but I think that people are willing to spend money on things now more than ever because they don't have little pleasures in life all the time or they can't go out to fancy dinners all the time or participate in events or fly around the world or do whatever they were doing. Um, That's so a good there's point. that. I think that I speak or often try to speak to a different demographic than who normally participates in those affairs. Are we saying a little younger? Um, younger or just not as maybe not as affluent, affluent, n nerdy, or even they as deep be, into it. They, they could be, nerds, be okay. But you know, I I often deal with a certain price point of buyer versus somebody who like can just drop a couple thousand dollars at a dinner on wine. That's not often my customer. <coughs> I love those people. Feel free to come visit me. I have wine for you. Right. But it's um that's not who I target. So I can't really say. I think <clears throat> I was really honored to moderate that panel because I was the only person that moderated that wasn't part of the Lafette organization. And also I got <clears throat> chosen to moderate a panel of nine women doing um, a really democratic group in Champagne called the Transmission. And that has always been something that I'm very well, passionate that... about. So, you know, I think that that seminar in particular <laughs> in case you're picking up the sound, that's my puppy who sounds a little bit more like a pig. It's my new friend. Well, new old friend. Um, but that's not me. Uh, that's <laughs> just snorting at that's me. Dion, Ariel's dog, sitting on my lap, talking the into the Dion. mic. The Dion. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think like that group or the people that tuned in for that conversation were people who aren't necessarily your mass collectors. Those are people that are really excited about the region of Champagne and, and the changes that are happening there. So so, so what you I did is... to it. Yeah, you took yourself out of it. I'm recusing I, myself from diplomatically. this question. Diplomatically, okay. Because normally I would so be there, like the big loudmouth saying no, no, X, no, Y, no, and Z, but, there's, but there's definitely, I respect to everybody these the, days. Right, and I don't disagree with that, but there's a discussion that has to be had. All right, I guess last, last, last question is what's keeping you up at night? I mean, is it business? Is it, you know, is it something particular today, right now? Is yeah. it everything we talked about? I don't like being able to not plan. So sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about like 
seven to ten things that I have to do and like but you have to get through the concept that you can't plan first. Yeah. yeah so like I'm not kidding last night I was up in the middle of the night thinking about oh well I have to figure out how to move the stereo equipment from Tokyo Record Bar downstairs up into airs I have to understand why I'm not applying for the PPP yet I need to get all the holiday decorations for Halloween that's coming like there's just a lot so of it's, stuff it's it's things are going, they're going okay, and all the things that you have to do that maybe you didn't get to, that you have to get to, um, that's good. Active mind, you know, <laughs> active things, you know, yeah. things to keep the ball moving. All right, we're going to wrap the show up. I want you to do this quickly. Okay. Um, it's called our wine list. You've done this before. We ask all our guests the same five questions. Uh, this is spontaneous. You probably don't remember the questions. Don't dwell on these. Um, so the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you tasting? Have the seasonal changes change? What's in AA's refridge? Um, it is funny because the last time we had this conversation, like I hadn't gone through a year and a half of niche niche. And what that means is we had 300 hosts and 1,200 different wines come in the door. Exposure, education. So now I have such an awareness of the world of still wine that I probably didn't even begin to think of. Um, I love Italian whites. Obsessed with Trebbiano, Fiano. Um, this, it's kind of, I think the last time I spoke to you, it was like Burgundy and Champagne, but like now I'm finding the kind of Burgundy of Italy and that makes me Give really me excited. a few makers that excite you. Well, of course, Valentini. Yeah. Which like, I... I will do it. <clears throat> Every time I see Valentini, I don't care what the price is. If I haven't tried the vintage, I'm like, that. that's what I want. I'm with you. It's like the <laughs> one purchase I'll make because it's hard to find. Yeah. And it's always good. Yes, yeah, so a good. Couple. All right. So that's good answers. Let's leave it at that. Is there anything else pushing as hard as that? Or that's really top of the list? Um, God, it's it's kind of crazy. There's so much that right, we have it, right now. Leave it at that because okay. that's very specific and okay. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, I probably know the answer to this. Favorite wine and food pairing? Champagne and pizza. <laughs> It'll be funny. I'm pretty sure that's what it's you said, what last, I said time. last time. All right, give yeah. me a second one. Um, I mean, I love a cheeseburger and I will still say champagne. Okay. I'm with you on both. Yeah. Um, I'm a pretty simple taste. Although about four years gal. ago, I went paleo except for wine, so I'm not eating the rolls, and I'm way down on pizza. Are just... you doing that right now? Is that what you said? Yeah, for four years already. You've been paleo for four yeah. years. My cheat is pizza a couple times. I yeah. mean, John's down the block's one yeah. of my favorites. I know you like some other places, but all Ugh. like you know, that's our, really impressive. Our Good studios and Roberta's and right. Lucali's and all that, even F and F. Um, can you, will you answer this question? Favorite wine restaurant and our bar, I would put this at my top of one of my lists, Niche Niche or Tokyo, because of the selection, the people, the vibe. That's what I'm looking to you for. When you're not here, do other people do it well? Are you comfortable, you know, throwing a few out? Yeah. Or do you feel exclusive? Uh, no. Give me a few. Of course not. Um, it's almost like what exists right now um, or you know before things change and i know you don't get out a lot right well yeah. i mean i love four horsemen i think that that 
like it's I'm probably sound like a broken record because everybody says it, but I just think that they've evolved in a really beautiful way. I think they started with a more natural bent, and now they just have a really awesome selection. Um, and I, the food is and the food's awesome. Yeah. Um, because I'm like in my Italian obsession, um, I always love to go to Mylino. I mean, if you. Weren't they always Jeff big Kellogg champagne? Back in the yeah. day and everything, he just set up this unbelievable list there that they just keep growing and it's fabulous. And then that would you brilliant. say that was one of the first early big champagne lists? Oh, I don't know. That was I, I think probably so. it was before my time. I, I think so. Yeah, I thought maybe you'd know for sure. All right, so those are two good ones. We don't have to go any further. Um, when I asked you this question last time, the question sort of has evolved. The question is favorite all-time wine. And when I originally structured the question, it was like, what's the rarest, most expensive wine Ariel ever drank? Mm. I don't care about that. Mm. What's the most important thing all-time that changed the way you think, that resonates, that you still think about, that influenced you? And sometimes it's, you know, like Victoria James when Lyle proposed to her um you know it was a kermit lynch you know 26 dollar bottle of wine what's that wine to you uh i mean this really isn't my always answer but it's the first thing that popped into my head when you asked that's that the question, right answer was my experience of getting to visit with marino Drew and champagne um if you when well it was her last vintage so 2006 18 I was there and it would have been her 2017 vintage um she's just such a badass like she makes all the wine herself out of basically three very small hectares um she is much older um she has a kind of a special secret life um she's just a most incredible so this, type of winemaker. The and story I is incredible, and the wines are great. Yeah. So that's why. And she's hand disgorging everything for you, and you're getting to taste things that you'll never get to taste again in your lifetime. And her wines are going to disappear because people are buying them up as quickly as they can get their hands yeah. on them, and they're set, they're drinking them. So it's kind we, of. A I wish we didn't tell everyone that sad story. You know yeah. to. To not be that, able to find these wines. That's forever. a good answer, and that's really the answers you know that I'm looking for. All right, last question. I think you can handle this one really well. And again, I'm curious this time versus last time. Recommend to me the best wine around fifteen, twenty, twenty-two bucks. My setup always is that my kids are in their twenties; they can't go to a dinner party or give a gift of a crappy supermarket wine, but they can't afford to do it over and over for forty bucks. So what's impressing people for 15, 20, 22 bucks? Give me a red, give me a white. You could do region, like Muscadet is a great value. You know, mm-hmm. is great. Whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick Puiz Chablis. P-I-U-Z-E. P-U-I-Z-E. Chablis. Yeah. Um, which I probably said last time, too. It's Maybe, but that's a good answer. That's like one of my... Like the Petit Chablis and... Yeah, I think you can actually even get buy the just like... Shubly for maybe solid. 25 bucks from him. And, and it's solid. Yeah, he's amazing. He's from Montreal and makes well, wine. That's right. Shibley. I forgot. Um, you know who gave me that answer, too? I think it was um, Cedric at 
11 Madison. Oh, well, obviously, I'm in no, good company. No, but with all his fancy wines. <laughs> He's so you know, fancy. He, able... he just made a wine, Vivantaire. Oh, I have to talk to him about Which is beautiful. They have an uh, orange wine that's really awesome. Mm. Um, and then give me red. Sometimes harder for most people. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Fox Pinot Noir. From where? Oregon. Those and w- you're talking 20, 22 bucks? I think her wine maybe comes in between tw- 20 and 30. But okay. I promise you, if you bought a bottle of that wine or if you can get your hands on it, you won't look at Pinot Noir the same way again. Those, uh, you piqued my interest. Those wines are so elegant and so, f- like, they have fruit and they're floral and they drink like violets. And sh- her wines are just amazing. So if it's a little more than what I'm looking for, it's still an incredible wine. It's an incredible Somewhere in that wine. range. Absolutely. Right. So like I said, I post all the answers because... Um, I think our, I know our listeners are interested in that. And I'm going to have to dig up the other ones, and I'll do a side-by-side. Um, we've been at this over an hour. My bad. I'm supposed to keep <laughs> it to okay. an hour. Um, i got to wrap up. Let me do a quick wrap-up. <clears throat> and then I want to get some information from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. I know, confusing. But you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned, we'll post Ariel's wine list um, on our social media sites next week. Ariel, if we want to find out more information and you put out an abundant amount of information on (laughs) all your venues. Lots. Where are the best places to follow what's going on here? So everything kind of filters through my personal, which is RC Cool. A R C E C O O L. Yep. Okay. And then for all the restaurants, they each kind of have their own identities. So you've got at Niche Niche NYC for Tokyo Record Bar. It's at Tokyo Record Bar and Airs at Airs Champagne. Um, and then I also started a caviar company. If you happen to oh, want some direct to, to consumer it. caviar, right, it's caviar. Let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> no, C A V I and then airs, you know, which is your first place. A I R. Yeah. Caviar. Caviar. And the concept is to take something that people think is hoity toity, give them quality, accessibility, and Affordability. value. Yeah. So, how do we do that? Uh, you can just go to the website, which C-A-V-I. is dash A-I-R, but you can also find it through our Instagram, and it's a pretty shop, easy shopping platform. Um, and you have everything, Kaluga, Kalu- Russian, ex- Sturgeon. Siberian, all- right. Russian. You have kits. You you just did a collaboration with Krug, yep. a little kit with a little bottle of Krug. Yeah, like we're about chip. to do one with Five Story, which is an amazing uh Boutique. I mean, what I hate using that word boutique, but an amazing store on the Upper East Side. So for all the downtown cool kids to actually take a little adventure uptown. Um, <laughs> and we're doing some stuff with the Hoxton Hotels for the holiday oh, season. Cool spot. Um, and we were talking about food and champagne. You pretty much can't beat caviar on a potato chip. That's it. Maybe with a dollop. A little creme fraiche. And a sip of champagne. Oh, yeah. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. So that's caviar. 
Um, that's your new venture, and it's something that I know is important to you and you're passionate about, and I wish you well on that. Thank you to our guest, Ariel Arce. It was always fun to sit down. Thank you. Uh, it is always fun to sit down with you. <laughs> um, thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Great Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.